Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And it feels like we just had an election last week and we just sorted out winners and losers, but we haven't exactly because this is one of those times where now we get into the political fallout from not so much in not necessarily last week's elections, but the fallout of what happens now and what the the legislature is going to look like. And we kind of talked about it a little bit last week and the plot thickened this week as we start to try to get a sense of who's going to be in charge and who's going to be uh, wielding influence, uh, extra influence at the state house. Uh, you know, the, there's a lot on the line here. I mean, there are some key spots that are on the line and some key elections that, boy, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for. Yeah, that, it's really interesting, Kevin, but now that voters uh, have weighed in and have settled the election, now we will look for the other dominoes to fall, right? And so early December, uh, the legislature is going to report to the state house for what's called the organizational session. But this is when we find out some of the really juicy details about who's going to be in leadership and then who's going to control some of these key committees that you and I watch every day during the legislative session. But let's start yeah, let's, at the very top. Let's start with the leadership elections that really took shape this week. So we know now that there are going to be contested races for all four spots in House Republican in House. leadership. Brent Crane, who has been in House leadership for several years, is going to abandon his assistant majority leader's seat because he's challenging House Speaker Scott Bedke, who has held that top spot for six years. John Vanderwoude, also from Nampa, like like Crane, is abandoning his spot as House Majority Caucus Chair to challenge longtime House Majority Leader Mike Moyle. That creates some open open spots for Assistant Majority Leader and for Caucus Chair. But the race is really to watch, and the ones that are really fascinating to me are the races for Speaker and for Majority Leader. Uh, I, I think most people would kind of handicap the speaker's race as Brent Crane running to the right of, of Scott Bedke. Oh, yeah. Seeking, yeah. seeking that conservative uh, uh, cadre of votes within that House. And this uh, could be interesting. It, it could be very interesting because we've kind of wondered where where this might unfold and w- would this unfold in the form of uh, a serious challenge to, to Bedke's spot as speaker. I mean, because over the last two years, we've seen some dust-ups between House Speaker Scott Bedke and some of the more conservative members of the legislature. Sometimes they refer to themselves as the liberty legislators. That may be a a term uh, that people are familiar with, but squabbles certainly between the speaker and uh, some of the most conservative members of the House. There were some protests and committee assignments that were temporarily suspended over the last couple of years. This could get interesting. It, It could get very interesting. And, you know, it's one of those races, I mean, most listeners probably know this if you follow Idaho politics. You already know that this is a somewhat secretive, but not always entirely secretive Let's just process. talk about real quick about how it plays out. And it, because um, this is something that Republicans in the House will settle amongst themselves behind closed doors, doors, often at like a steakhouse or a whatever. Yeah, it's a closed caucus meeting. And in those caucus meetings, the votes are, are held. So you don't find out who voted for whom. You're always find out what the vote margin is and you don't always have a sense of you know 
whether it was a, a landslide right. one way or the other or whether it was a really narrow uh, election one way or the other. You don't know if there's any kind of you know behind-the-scenes arm twisting. Do people change their votes along the way? I mean, that's, They really you know, wipe the blood off the walls and put on a happy face when they come out to report uh, what's happened, right? Unless they want to talk about right. it. Unless, yeah, unless an individual member or a candidate for a leadership position wants to talk about it. Uh, we don't really uh, know all of the juicy details, but I mean, with everything that's happened in the House the past couple of years, with, with kind of, as you mentioned, sort of the the dust-ups between Bedke and House uh, House conservatives, I mean, this, this almost feels like a, a missed revenue opportunity for House Republicans. <laughs> if you put this on pay-per-view, I'd watch it on Wednesday night. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, there, there may not be, you know, huge... But I think there'd be a niche audience who would love to see how this thing plays out and are really going to be interested to see who winds up emerging as the next speaker, who winds up emerging as the next majority leader. The majority leader race is a little bit uh, less clear cut to me than the Bedke Crane race mm -hmm. because uh, John Vanderwaude and Mike Moyle are kind of cut from the same ideological cloth. They're both pretty conservative. So there's there's not a pronounced difference. I mean, you know, maybe Vanderwaude is positioning as you know a, a change agent, a different voice in that in that position. Maybe uh, maybe that appeals to uh, House Republicans if they feel like Moyle has been too heavy-handed in his approach. And we've, heard, we've heard that and we've heard that criticism before. His I mean, reputation is sort of as a lion uh, in the House, you know. Mike Moyle does not suffer nonsense uh, very. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, very kindly. I mean, he's you know he's a pretty no nonsense kind of guy. So that may rub some people the wrong way. Maybe that uh, becomes uh, an issue moving more personality than than policy. Why does all of this matter, and, and why do we care about this beyond the you know the the palace injury? Yeah, right. <laughs> Two very important committee seats, committee chairs are open at this hour in the House. That's the House Education Chair as well as the House Education Vice Chair, yeah. and the the House Chair for the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. The Budget Committee, the Joint the, Budget the, Committee. The Budget Writing Committee. So you want to talk about the two committees that have probably the most say over K-12 policy in the House. You're talking about House Education, and you're talking about JFAC. Mm -hmm. The next speaker and the next leadership team is going to ultimately have the, the final say about who goes where and who chairs the House Education Committee, and who chairs uh, the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. That has myriad, uh, myriad effects on a lot of policy, whether we're talking about uh, the career ladder, whether we're talking about uh, funding for, you, you name it, for mastery-based education, for technology in class. The whole rewrite of the school funding and formula hangs in the balance. the whole rewrite of the school funding formula, which is going to presumably start in the two education committees in the House and the Senate. So the chairs are extremely, extremely important. And even before we had this leadership election start to unfold, we were talking amongst our, between our, you and I about uh, who might be that next House Education Committee chair. And it's, it's kind of hard to handicap, especially when you don't know who the next speaker is going to be. Just some real quick background. I think that House Education chairmanship is super interesting, and I think it's wide open, and it's up for grabs with no clear favorite. The background, real quick, in the spring primary, House Education Chair Julie Van Orden from the Blackfoot area lost her primary. She's out then. Last week on November 6th, 
Vice Chairman Patrick McDonald, a Republican from Boise, lost in the general election as District 15, at least in the House, uh, turned from Republican control to Demo Democratic control. So the top two members of the House Education Committee are out. Whew, it's going to be interesting to see who could be uh, in line for that chairmanship because I don't think there's a favorite. And I wrote a really interesting article last week about some of the possibilities about how this could shake up. And I think it's further complicated by the uh, speakership struggle. Yeah. Um, but House Ed, as I follow it every morning uh, for years, it's the largest committee in the House. It has also become one of the most conservative committees in the House over the last few years. There are some really strong, outspoken Republican personalities on that committee. I'm thinking of Representative Ryan Kirby. I'm thinking of Representative Judy Boyle. I'm thinking of Representative Scott Syme. But for a number of reasons, it may not be any one of those three, mm -hmm. uh, particularly because Representative Boyle already chairs a different committee. Um, Representative Syme is kind of a, a, a fairly green lawmaker. I believe he's just finishing his first term. And although he was very outspoken, particularly during the science standards debate, doesn't have a lot of legislative experience. Representative Kirby, similar situation. He's got two terms under his belt. Um, but he recently, over the last couple of years, was uh, reprimanded by the state of Idaho, by the Professional Standards Commission, uh, for not following Idaho law and the Educator's Code of Conduct uh, when it came to teacher evaluations. And that's a very controversial topic in Idaho, continues to be. Uh, we have an update on that later in this podcast. And then so maybe does the new speaker look outside of the existing House Education Committee structure uh, for the next leader, particularly if it's Speaker Bedke who retains the speakership, and particularly if the school funding formula rewrite uh, is of high importance to him. Maybe yeah. you look uh, at a JFAC member, um, perhaps Representative to. Wendy Horman, perhaps Representative Sage Dixon. Right now there's a scheduling conflict between JFAC and House Ed, uh, so they could not serve on both committees. But it's just fascinating when you try to handicap this thing. Right. I don't know how it's going to go. And I think you lay out the, the, the ground, you know, I, I, th I think you give a, a really good overview of just sort of the terrain here. If Brent Crane is the next House Speaker and he wants to put a conservative in charge of the House Education Committee, he has multiple options right on that committee. You yeah. know, he, he could go to Orion Kirby. He could, yeah. you know, he could go to a Gay and Mordaunt or a... Um, or Scott Syme, who who are you know relatively inexperienced legislators, but we've seen you know chairs you know in, in other committees uh, arise to that position fairly soon. I mean, you you do get sometimes a second term legislator chairing a committee. It, it happens. It doesn't happen very often. At any rate, you know, a Speaker Crane has a lot of ways he can go. The Speaker Bedke has some limited options. I mean. You know, Patrick McDonald would have been an option, you know, to move from vice chair to chair. And he may not have really wanted know, it, but it's, it's a moot point now. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a moot point because he's not there to make that decision. But, you know, we've seen it happen before where, you know, a speaker says to a vice chair, look, I really need you in this spot. You got to step up. <laughs> I, you know, I got to have you there. And, you know, you know, you use the powers of persuasion sometimes to get people to do something that they're not always sure they really want to do but if if speaker Bedke, if there, if he is speaker uh next month and heading into uh 2019 
if he really wants somebody in charge of house education who is on board with the idea of a funding formula rewrite, you look at the folks who have been on that committee mm -hmm. on the House side. It's him, Bedke. It's uh, Julie Van Orden, who will leave the legislature officially next month. It's Wendy Horman, who sits on JFAC and, and could very easily be in position to be a chair of JFAC or a vice chair of JFAC. Or it's Sage or, Dixon, yeah. who is on JFAC and is also running for one of the leadership spots. He's one of the candidates now to uh, for the House uh, Majority Caucus chair position. So if he were to get that and he's in leadership, probably not going to be also House Education Committee chair. That doesn't usually happen. So... If you're if you're Bedke, if you're speaker, and you're trying to get somebody in that House Education Committee who's well versed on the School Funding Formula Committee, you know, the 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 table is very limited. There are very few chess moves that he can make. I mean, you know, and you know, Wendy Horman had been on the House Education Committee before. Then she moved over to JVAC. She's she a former school board member. She carries the public school budget. A lot of knowledge about education policy and education budgeting. And she's pretty well respected over there. Right, and, and has a lot of clout in the education process by virtue of her role in writing education budgets. And you know, it's a little bit different in the House as opposed to the Senate. I mean, for Wendy Horman, especially because of the time crunch, because JFAC and House Education meet at the same time, also because you got 70 members of the House, 54 House Republicans uh, looking for spots on uh, key committees and leadership spots. She can't have both. She can't be on JFAC and, and chair House Education. A little bit different than what you see with Dean Mortimer over on the Senate side where he sits on JFAC and chairs Senate Education. Uh, the math is just a lot different on the House. So really fascinating. Really fascinating to see what will happen with House Education, what happens with that JFAC position. I mean... You know, again, Wendy Horman may be in a position to move up and become uh, even more of a leader in JFAC. Uh, the vice chair on the House side of JFAC, uh, Rick Youngblood, you know, he may, you know, step into that uh, chair's position. And, you know, and we've got the same kind of thing going on on the Senate side mm -hmm. in JFAC. You know, uh, you know, Sean Keogh is retired, you know, like Maxine Bell, the House uh, chair on JFAC. So there's a, an opening for Senate chair on JFAC, could even be an opening for vice chair. On, Depending on this recount, right. in, in uh, West Boise District 15, Senator Martin's seat, I believe the unofficial numbers showed him winning re-election by six, six votes, votes, but they are going to proceed with the recount. Right, so automatic recount. So he's vice chair of JFAC on the Senate side. He may not be around. I mean, we will see what happens with that recount. So and if he's gone, that may create yet another opening for Senator Mortimer uh, to really ascend the ranks in JFAC, and then he may have an interesting decision to make, or Senate leadership may have an interesting decision to make. Yeah, um, you know, somebody's going to have to share JFAC on the House and Senate sides, and it's really hard to handicap who winds up getting that position. You know, it's a little bit easier on the Senate side, because there aren't as many senators, first of all, right. and there aren't as many potential changes in Senate leadership. I think... Uh, I think there's one, one contested race, race that yeah. we know about in, in leadership. But, you know, the rest of leadership looks like it's going to be fairly much intact. So, you know, a little bit less flux there. But a lot has to be sorted out. So, 
Anyway. We'll be uh, sorting this out the first full week of December, right? Right. right That's right. when the leadership elections are, and then the next day or so is the organizational session when we expect the committee assignments and the committee chairmanships to be revealed, right? Right. So that's what we'll be watching for that first week of December. But no sense waiting till the first week of December to speculate about it because it's really fascinating stuff for those of us who spend a lot of time around the state house and you know and if you care about education policy this this is important stuff as well because uh, we'll get a really good sense really quickly of who's going to be in positions of influence over education budgets and education policy yeah everybody will be watching it another huge issue for education uh, another huge session for education appears to be teed up a lot could happen this could go a lot of ways it could be really interesting in either scenario, under who becomes speaker, some really interesting stuff could play out. We'll be there that week, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll continue sure to uh, handicap it and, and, and maybe uh, talk to our sources beforehand and get some more information to you. But uh, that's not the only thing that we are looking at <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, yeah, yeah, I feel like to review this week, we almost have to go back to late last week and... Uh, a, a little news drop that happened uh, late last week. So I don't know where you were on five, on Friday afternoon, Friday evening at 5.36 p.m. Uh, because I have basically not much of a life, I was uh, looking on my, my phone and looking at my inbox and my email and, you know, all of my synced up email accounts from work and personal life. And lo and behold, we get scores from the State Department of Education for the New round at the Idaho Reading Indicator. Let's talk about the scores. And Let's the talk about the scores first. And, and the importance of the scores. This was the first round of tests with the new version of the Idaho Reading Indicator. And so this, this measures is, literacy and fluency among students in grades kindergarten through third grade. Right. Very important early screening for K-3 through three students to see where they stand at the beginning of the school year in terms of reading readiness, in terms of reading skills. So new test designed to give teachers an idea of how students are doing in terms of reading speed, but also reading comprehension, language understanding, phoneme awareness, a whole battery of metrics that teachers can use to figure out who needs extra help in their classes, who needs extra attention in terms of reading. Bottom line, K through three, 52% of students showed up this fall reading at grade level or having, you know, grade level reading skills. The numbers vary widely from grade to grade. When you talk about kindergartners, you're down to 45%. Numbers considerably higher for second and third graders. Like I say, it's a screener. The idea is that this is supposed to help teachers figure out what to do with their students uh, through the school year. What you would expect to see happen, we see it every year, is that the spring scores for these students are gonna be better than what we saw in the fall because you know kids get the extra help, they pick up skills, they catch up, they move ahead of, um, maybe you know, a lot of times move ahead of expectations, so the grades go up. Very important, and we tried very hard not to do this, uh, it was very hard to draw comparisons between the 2018 scores and the 2017 scores. Whole new test, whole new set of metrics. The numbers are lower. But the State Department of Education told us to expect that. Mm -hmm. New test, uh, more ways to grade students, more areas where they may come up short of grade level, the numbers are going to drop. 
That makes a lot of sense to me. I really, I, I understand that. So in our coverage, we've tried to be extremely careful. We kind of said, oh, by the way, the scores are lower, but you knew that was going to happen. Uh, we came to expect that. But now we got to talk about the timetable. And, and this is where it gets troubling for me. And I, I know it gets troubling for all of us here because this is an issue we've been tracking since August. Uh, back in late August, uh, we were told to expect these uh, results by the third week of October. Correct. Third week of October rolls around and diligently as reporters, we check back with the State Department of Ed and say, hey, uh, where are those reading scores? And this launched a process of requests and responses and re-requests. As late as October 29th, uh, eight days before the election, uh, you were told that we would be getting these numbers in two days. We would have them by Halloween, six days before the election. Well, what happened on Halloween, six days before the election, was that we got a letter from State Department of Education saying, we need more time to put these numbers together. You will have them by November 9th. Well, November 9th, as you all know, is three days after the election. And sure enough, that's when we got the, the scores, three days after the election, not before the election, as we had been told to expect. And not only three days after the election, but really after business hours. I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that these came across at 5.36 p.m. That's when the email arrived. It's after a lot of folks are gone for the day, uh, not just at the State Department of Education, but in newsrooms across the state. I mean, if you're working in a newsroom late Friday afternoon, early Friday evening, you're probably working on other things. You're not sitting around waiting for results from the State Department of Education. So we scrambled together the scores and the story as best we could after hours. This whole thing is really troubling. The, the whole timing around the election and the late kind of after hours release of the results is really, it violates, at the very least, it violates the, the spirit of an open records law. It makes it really, it, it politicizes the release of data that probably shouldn't have been political in the first place. These are student test scores, they're screening scores. Uh, they're a snapshot into how students are performing in the fall uh, of a school year. Yeah, that they were released so late in the day, three days after the election, just, you know, it raises so many red flags and arouses so much suspicion. It looks horrible. And also, uh, I'm just going to come out and say this department and this administration has a track record. And that played into it, absolutely. Um, but a little bit more on the timing. On October 18th, we submitted an official public records request seeking the data, seeking the scores. State law gives the State Department of Education, Sherry Ibarra's State Department of Education, 10 days to comply with that records request. Um, we feel that they did not comply with that records request. They maintain uh, that the records did not exist when we requested them. We have sent follow-up records requests to try to pinpoint exactly what they knew, when they knew, when they knew it, how they knew it, and preliminarily that records request, which should shed light onto the timing issue, has been denied. Right. Um, so, so what, what, it's what, concerning what? to me that school districts themselves had their results in September. And we know that because we've talked to superintendents about it. This was a test administered online. School districts received uh, some of their results almost instantaneously, had sure. them in September. I am deeply concerned by the fact that 
School districts have had their results since September. We started asking for it in August. We submitted a, an official public records request October 18th before the election. We cannot ignore the fact that the election took place and the information was released afterwards. No, and, and you know, what happened here is that it, it, it feels like the SDE, the State Department of Education, has focused its attention on our follow-up request, which was October 26th, which creates this 10-day window that allows the release of the data after the election. And, you know, it overlooks the fact that we were requesting this information earlier. It just earlier. strains any kind of credibility. It amazes me that they could not come up with this information in September or October uh, but then on October 31st, October 31st, they sent us a letter in writing saying that they would get it to us by November 9th. One of the great miracles of all time, it came in November 9th. How in the world did they know that? It's, it strains credibility. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and yeah, the, the problem is, too, and, and I, like I was saying before, I mean... This makes the release of the data look a lot more political than it needs to be. I mean, you know, this is a this is a screener to look at how K through three students are doing in the fall on reading skills. Uh, we'll, we'll get a new round of numbers in in the spring. We'll see where the kids are in the spring. I mean, this this really this should not have been this difficult. This should not have taken this much time. This should not have taken this many requests. It should not look this bad. Because the scores, I, I'm not as troubled by the scores. I mean, you know, you know, I know some people will look at it and say the scores dropped. I, I understand why the scores are lower, and, and I really have taken pains to not compare the two scores. I, don't, I think that's unfair. Uh, that's the part that doesn't trouble me. What looks bad and what really troubles me is the the convoluted Byzantine process that it's taken us to get here. We also haven't results. got into it. We got some amazing excuses from one of the public records people at the State Department of Education. Everything imaginable. It makes my dog ate my homework look like a routine. I mean, just fantastical excuses and solutions about illnesses and car crashes and it's just ridiculous. Um, and the bottom line is uh, on that, you know, we're requesting records not from one person in an agency. From an we're, agency with 140 employees. Precisely. And the public records law in the state of Idaho does not say anything about if someone's mother's brother was in a car accident or if someone was sick or if they had a dentist appointment or if they stubbed their toe. We didn't get stubbed toe in any of the, in the paper trail, but the point being, I mean, it, it's, it's, been, it's been a troubling process. So that became part of the story, uh, not just the scores, but the process. So anyway, we've got all of that laid out at idahoednews.org. You can see the scores, you can see the chronology, you can, you can uh, assess both for yourself. But that's not the only convoluted issue that came across the, our desks this week, and you've been working on one that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, this could. This I was going to say this could get nasty, but too it late. Already, it's already gotten it, nasty. It already has. Tell us what's going on here with uh, with with, yeah. with teacher evaluations and this contract and the 
back and forth. I mean, this is kind of uh, political on political violence going on here. It, it really is. Uh, this is uh, an issue that the Idaho Statesman first broke uh, on Wednesday of this week with the publication of a letter from retiring Governor Butch Otter, a Republican, obviously, to uh, Republican State Representative Wendy Horman. Uh, Governor Otter came out in very strong terms in this letter, which the statesman first published, saying that Representative Horman and State Board of Education Executive Director Matt Freeman were involved in these discussions designed to skirt uh, state purchasing laws. Uh, serious alloga- yeah. allegations here, and it all that, has... That's not a bell you unring anytime soon. No, Saying no. you skirted the law... Yeah, that's that's. It all has to do with the contract and bidding process involving this one million dollar state earmark, the state line item, to pay for a new software program for school districts to use with their teacher evaluations. So far, that's pretty straightforward. There have been uh, instances of fraud, really, that have been uncovered with teacher evaluations. It's sort so of been, been a controversial for topic it's for been a, four years. It's I want to say been a mess in and of itself. And so this year, uh, the legislature's budget writing committee approved $1 million for the software program designed to help school districts. And how the bidding and the RFPs and the contracting was handled is the issue here. Um, Governor Otter sort of alleges that Horman and and Freeman kind of worked together to skirt procurement laws. They have since come out strongly. I talked to Representative Horman. I got, I've spoken with folks at the State Board of Education and got a statement both Horman and Freeman strongly deny any wrongdoing. They admit that Freeman requested that the RFP, the request for proposals, be canceled. But he said they did it because there were a number of concerns about the timing and about the availability of the software program. He said we wanted it canceled because this was already into the school year. And the system was supposed to be rolled out by August so that teachers and school districts and administrators could use this new program for the teacher observations and the teacher evaluations. Uh, By that point, they were already into September. Um, It was not going to be rolled out at the beginning of the school year. The further contracting process on the 30-day timeline to deploy the software would have pushed this well into the first semester of the school year. And Freeman and Horman had some concerns about that. And so Freeman wrote an email saying that he thought that the most responsible choice for the state at this point, given that everything that had happened was to cancel the RFP and do one of two things, either return the million dollars to the state or to send the money out to school districts to buy, uh, to purchase software programs for themselves, whatever one they wanted. Mm-hmm. Governor Otter said in his letter to Representative Horman uh, that that was going around state procurement process. He claims that there was this preferred state vendor uh, that did not Uh, that was not the low bidder, that was not going to be awarded the contract, and that most important, or not most importantly, but also importantly, Governor Otter wanted to maintain statewide administration and oversight of the teacher evaluations program. But I mean, this, you can really see about how this is, I mean, it's a fight between prominent Republicans Mm -hmm. um, that's come public a week after the election. Uh, and it and, has and, to do and, with control and state oversight and state purchasing laws. Representative Horman fired back, yeah. and she said, you got to keep in mind these criticisms, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I have the exact quote in my story, which we published Thursday, but she said, paraphrasing, you got to keep in mind these criticisms are coming from Governor Otter, who oversaw the Idaho Education Network contract debacle, which cost the state millions of dollars yeah. through a complicated lawsuit process. Yeah. She said she was simply doing her due diligence 
to make sure um, that the state money was spent wisely and that she viewed her job as a legislator and a member of JFAC as having to do just that. So it, we're very much at odds right now, and this is just playing out as we record this podcast. Governor Otter alluded to the potential for litigation in his letter to Representative Horman. We've certainly seen litigation on some of these statewide contracts in the past, but but this is a mess. Yeah, and, and potentially another lengthy lawsuit over an education-related contract. You know, stop us if you've heard that before. <laughs> right. I mean, it's... Uh, and, and you know, the bottom line of it, too, is... And you've written about this for, for going on four years now, I think, Clark. Yeah. I mean, teacher evaluations are a big deal, and they've been a big mess in and of themselves. You know, lots of problems with... Uh, what districts have reported in terms of evaluations data. And this is the this is the yardstick that's being used to determine teacher pay and teacher pay raises across the state. So, you know, getting this right in terms of if you're going to put a million dollars into software to uh, to monitor this process, getting this right is is pretty big deal. It is a big deal. And you're exactly right on the sort of genesis on why the evaluations are a big deal. It's because, in 2015, 2016, the state legislature tied a teacher's ability to earn a raise to their performance on these teacher evaluations. And it all has to do with the career ladder, the uh, five-year state plan for ramping up salaries. The legislature and the governor wanted some accountability to go along with this additional, at this point, hundreds of millions of dollars right. invested in salaries through the career ladder. They wanted some accountability. And they the wanted the teacher evaluations to be that accountability. The accountability mechanism. Of choice, and you know, there have been a lot of concerns about whether the scores that are coming into the state really reflect what's uh, what the evaluations really say, and whether they're an accurate measure of you know how teachers are being evaluated on the ground. So, yeah, it's it, it, it's not just a big deal because it's a fight over a contract and a fight over a million dollars. I mean, this is a process that goes very deep to distribute tens of millions of dollars of teacher pay raises a year. So it goes definitely something we'll be watching closely. It goes very deep. If you want to get caught up, the first story that I published was Thursday, and it was talking about uh, sort of the fallout from this letter uh, and where Representative Horman and, and Matt Freeman denied any wrongdoing. But I've got you know almost 50 pages of emails at this point. I've got the letter from Governor Otter. Uh, but as we record this, we're kind of at the beginning of this fight, and it sort of sounds and seems and feels like it to be continued. Oh, yeah. Um, We've definitely not heard the last word on this. We have some outstanding records requests that are still being fulfilled. We anticipate getting more documents, more information uh, about the bidding process. We expect more information about the bidding process itself also to come out in the coming days. But this was a serious letter, and the response was serious. Yeah. Um, I think this is just beginning, and we may be dealing with this weeks, months, a year. I, I, I don't know, but I think this will be ongoing, and this yeah. will probably keep me busy. Something new, among other things, for Governor-elect Brad Little to uh, to deal with, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. The best way to Welcome stay, aboard. Yeah, the best way to stay up to date on all the stories that we talked about on our podcast and all the news that we're going to break after we finish recording this podcast is to just follow our homepage. That's www.idahoednews.org or give us a follow on Twitter at IdahoEdNews. That's where we break 
all of our top stories. Uh, if you have any information, uh, if you're in a school district and have any information about the evaluation software, uh, there's contact information for Kevin and I on our website, and we would love to hear from you. Love to see if you have any experience with these software programs, and if you have any thoughts uh, about this system, because we're going to continue to uh, to cover this issue. Great. Uh, but that, that's about a long podcast. I think yeah. there's only four or five more topics I want to get to uh, today before we wrap we'll things up. An intermission, up. right? You know, we'll <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I think we're going to cut it off here. That's those are the three top stories I wanted to talk about. Um, just give you give everybody a heads up. Uh, we have a lot of fun with the Extra Credit Podcast. In light of Thanksgiving next week, though, we are going to take off a week. Right. No extra credit podcast Thursday. I hope you get to enjoy some time with your friends, uh, with your family, celebrate Thanksgiving, spend some time with your family. We will be back no- November 30th with a big, huge, special prod- podcast uh, unveiling your higher education project, filling in some more of the blanks on the uh, political front as we get closer and closer to the legislative session. I fully anticipate we'll have more updates on the evaluation software issue. Uh, So have fun next week. Enjoy time with your friends and family. And um, and we'll We'll be back back November 30th. We'll be back in two weeks to talk a lot about the 60% goal and uh, a project I've been working on for five months. I'm I'm excited to to drop these stories. I I think they're important. I think they, I hope they cover a lot of new ground and, and, and continue a conversation. The stories will run from November 26th through the 29th. We have a town hall meeting in Boise on the evening of December 4th. Uh, You can be there in person at the Boise State Special Events Center or watch it on Facebook Live, but we'll talk a lot more about that after Thanksgiving. Yep. Last thing before before we go, I want to give a big thank you to our listeners and to our readers. As I may have mentioned last week, last week was a record in terms of readership at Idaho Education News. We already know now that November is the best month that we have ever had in terms of readership at Idaho Education News. So thank you so much. Whether you're listening to the podcast, whether you follow us on social media, whether you visit the homepage every day, whether you get our newsletter, thank you. Um, It's been a lot of fun. It means a lot to us um, to see our audience grow and to see readers respond uh, to the work that that we do. And so thank you so much and have a great Thanksgiving. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.